All right, Em. On this podcast, we often go back in time to examine some pretty old, sometimes pretty obscure rituals, people, and concepts, which is sort of like our way of time traveling through the world. Mm, It's the closest we'll ever get, certainly. (laughs) Yes. And (laughs) I'll embrace that for sure. Good. Well, today we're going back real far to the very birthplace of civilization, to the very genesis of life as we know it. Not to be dramatic or anything. Oh, yeah, right. We've got a lot to learn about some of the earliest recorded evidence of magic. Okay. I am actually so stoked about this. Also, I got to throw in a pun. It sounds like this is going to be a magical episode. Uh, Good one. (laughs) Move on. Move on quickly. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rituals, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Christine Schieffer. And I'm M. Schultz. And every week we'll explore the evolution of spiritualism on the occult through stories, practices, and the impact on modern culture. Well, today we're getting into the magic of Mesopotamia. I'm so excited. Oh, I love this topic. I'm very, very, very stoked to hear what you have to say, sweet Christine. Oh, good. Well, I guess let's crack into it, huh? Yes, 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 yes. All right, so I promised you that we'd time travel today and get some magical history. Mm. Speaking of history, were you a good history student back when we had to take history class? I got a D. And oh! It, so, Uh-oh. <laughs> you know when they say things are wasted on the youth. I definitely was too young to appreciate a history class at the time. In today's world, it'd be very different. But at the time, no, I did not care about history at all. What about you? Yeah, I think I'm in a similar boat. I didn't get a D because my mom would have sent me off to like some reform school or something. But Oh, I got a talking to, that's for sure. It was, I never got a D again in anything. Let's put it that way. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like you're completely right that it was wasted because now I think history is fascinating and you and I love to go and imagine what life was like back then, much to the chagrin of our history teachers who were probably like, I tried so hard to get Uh you to care. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I feel like if they found out that we're talking about history now, they'd be like, what? Well, seriously, (laughs) like, where's the credit? I deserve some. Yeah, yeah, I do recognize that as sad as it is. Mm -hmm. I know that we talk about time travel in general on mm-hmm. and that's why we drink. And I'm pretty sure you believed time travel to be real. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. thousand percent. And by the way, technically, even if it doesn't exist in our time, if it exists in a time anywhere, it exists exactly. in our time. But then don't you think we would have seen if somebody came back from the future, wouldn't we have already known that someday we invent time travel? Uh, I maybe if it's so far from the future, they also had other gadgets and gizmos that they're much better at being a sleuth than we know. They got invisibility cloaks. They got something else. I bet if time travel does exist before it was ever used recreationally, if that, there was a lot of laws. I feel like time travel would, there'd be several, several years, if not decades of practice before they could even admit it and then regulate it and... By the time it happens, we don't know what's going on. No, you're totally right. I don't think they could just let people go willy-nilly back in time. Yeah, we're not Phil uh, of the future, okay? (laughs) Unfortunately, we're not. Uh, (laughs) What an underrated show, though. I feel like 
I would want to go back in time, but also I'd probably be the one to accidentally drop my invisibility cloak and then like ruin the future. Uh-huh. You'd like flip the kill switch by accident. Oops. Some, yeah. Something goes horribly awry. <laughs> it would. It would. I don't think I'd even be allowed. I don't think I'd be given a chance to go back. But to go back to Mesopotamia and see like magical rituals. I mean. How fun. I know. How cool would that Especially be? Especially because we're talking about like some of the earliest magic. Talk about wanting to know where the core history, mm-hmm. the beginning of it all. Because I feel like I, I personally get so overwhelmed with how many branches there are in the world of the history of magic because you've got got witchcraft, you've got so many different cultures where they all have their own Mm -hmm. practices. And I feel like it's a really, really big bite to chew. Oh, yeah. And I feel like, of course, it would be so simple to just start from the beginning. So that's a great way to put it. And we're going to try our best to do that today in in the least what's the word, least um, physical way possible. We're not moving out of our chairs, but we will be traveling. The easiest field trip you'll ever take. Yeah, Yeah. there you go. So do you know anything about the Mesopotamians before we jump into it? All I know is that they like created everything. That's Yeah, I mean, that's pretty good. You're pretty on it. Once I found that out, I was like, okay, big shoes to fill. I'm already (laughs) overwhelmed and threatened. So congratulations. (laughs) They like created time or like like uh, like writing and math and the wheel and shit. So yeah, I mean, you really listen to history class at least one day because you're pretty on the nose there. I think I learned about it from a show on Nickelodeon, actually. Okay, well. Whoops. But you know what? Maybe we won't tell our teachers that. But I retained it. That's what's important. So Honestly, I'm pretty impressed. Well, I have one note before we really crack into it. Mm -hmm. And that's that this topic, as you already alluded to, is a doozy. It's a huge, huge topic. And to take even a bite out of it is, you know, a big ask. So it was a lot to research and distill. And so I just want to point out up top that this is more of an introduction, not a deep dive. You know, in 45 minutes, we can't really... believe it or not, delve into the entirety of Mesopotamian culture. (laughs) What? We can't? (laughs) I know. (laughs) I know. Maybe a Nickelodeon episode will cover it someday, but for now. Squidward will give me one (laughs) sentence and we'll know what's going on here. So, you know what? That's just kind of the the overarching umbrella note here for everybody that, you know, we're not going to get into everything, unfortunately, but it's a good starting point. Yeah. I mean, when we covered our, uh, we covered Wicca, and mm-hmm. we were like, we certainly won't be able to cover everything in, yes. in this Surface episode. level. And that's just one type of magic. Are you kidding yeah, me? Yeah, exactly. This is like the tip of the iceberg's tip exactly. of their tiny little iceberg. Tip of the iceberg. So this episode is going to remind us about the Mesopotamians. We're going to learn a little bit about them, who, by the way, lived in Mesopotamia. I know this is already... Hopefully what? nobody's <laughs> rolling their eyes yet, but that's, you know what? Not everybody knows that. So we're going to start from square one, people. Start from square one. This episode is for anyone else who got a D in history. And like, we're yeah. just trying to bring it back. I'm sure you're not the only one. Yeah. No. So they lived in Mesopotamia and Mesopotamia itself was home to some of the earliest known human civilizations to exist. Mm. So you already kind of touched on that. But this is like early, early days. Very cool. So for any geography nuts out there, Mesopotamia was in the region now known as the Middle East in the valleys between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. So the word Mesopotamia is formed from the ancient words meso, which means between, and potamos, which means river. And here's a fun fact for you, M. Hippopotamus 
means horse plus river. So like a river horse. Oh, that's so nice. Oh, that's fun. You know, I do love language. I wish that was a class in school, just like the linguistics of like... I think it probably was in college, but definitely not in high school. Just to learn where words even come from and to know that a hippopotamus is just a river pony. Like, are you kidding me? (laughs) Like, why wasn't it taught like that? I would have remembered that. Oh, my gosh. I know. Well, now you will. So. Oh, man. You're right. That was a great first fun fact for the episode. Yeah, yeah. starting off strong. So the region is now home to modern-day Iraq, Kuwait, Turkey, and Syria. And the Mesopotamians had so many gods with so many different names, so many different duties. Mm. It all depended on where you lived, during what time, who was in power. I mean, we can see that happen in probably every culture across the world as we go back in time that things shift depending on who's in power and, you know, what different groups believe. Yeah, it's a very complex web. Yes, definitely. So one of the foundations of Mesopotamian belief systems was that religion equals magic. Ooh, I love ah. it. I love it. But I also, I feel like I'm not totally surprised because I feel like we've had this conversation before where we've been able to compare religion and magic to each other. Yes, yes. To have beliefs that are grounded really in no science until science shows up and now it's being explained to you for the first real time, you know? Yeah, yeah. I feel like the word magic, at least nowadays, probably people don't like to associate with religion, but people believe in miracles and mm-hmm. Things they can't see and really understand. To have faith in things that can't be explained and then you're amazed by it and it's like, oh, well, sounds pretty similar. Sounds pretty magical to me. And then both of them can eventually be described in some form of logic eventually if you wait around long enough to figure out the trick to it all. You know, I don't know. (laughs) The big trick. (laughs) The man behind the curtain. Humans first settled in Mesopotamia in the Paleolithic era, which is also known as the Old Stone Age, just a cool, casual two and a half million years ago to 10,000 BCE. So just (laughs) a stone's throw away (laughs) from today. (laughs) (laughs) Way to use the word stone in there. That was clever. (laughs) Comedy gold. Thank you so much. I do wonder if time travel were real or is real, how would it take more Mm -hmm. To get that far back? Like, would it be more dangerous? Would it be more, like, shifts? Like, would you screw more things up the farther back you went? I don't know. Oh, now that's a fun theory that will wreck my day. Like, butterfly effect. (laughs) (laughs) I definitely always thought of every single time travel as being the same distance away. But you're right. Maybe if you go back, like, to before we were even here, is that at least, like, a cross-country flight? Yeah, like, do you get a... uh, at least an extra drink service oh, on the way. Wow, we could really we could really get into this conversation. Okay, <laughs> we'll quickly move on, though. Sorry, sorry, we're riding the ship. We're coming back. Okay. So the Mesopotamian era spans from roughly 10,000 BCE to 651 CE, but its Ooh. history is... Fr- I know, I know, it's a hike. But its history is further broken up into many periods and empires and eras, with one influencing the next... For example, the Sumerian civilization gave way to the Akkadian Empire. Mm. And just to make things easy for this episode, we're just going to refer to the Mesopotamian era as a whole. So rather than like the different chapters of it. Sounds fair. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Just to keep it a little more streamlined, let's say. Mm -hmm. So as you already kind of touched on, the basis of many innovations that shape our lives today were invented in this era, such as agriculture, 
the concept of time. I mean, you even already <laughs> said that. Like, that alone is just mind-blowing. <laughs> what like, do you what? mean? <laughs> that alone could be, like, a college course history class to <laughs> invent time. What? Yeah, just, world? like, the first people to really understand and nail down what time is. I mean, mind-blowing. Amazing. And on top of that, there was math, the wheel, which you also touched on, sailboats, maps, the justice system, like any sort of <laughs> facet you can probably imagine about our daily lives had some basis in Mesopotamian era. Talk about like a resume. Yeah. <laughs> Every other civilization is looking real lazy right about now. I know. <laughs> it's sort of like, really? I mean, leave some for the rest of us. I know. I oh, my God. I'm embarrassed. I'm like, well, I got out of bed today. So <laughs> that's a that's a feat. OK, call it a win. They invented math and we just got D's <laughs> and we're like, didn't care. So it is pretty embarrassing <laughs> if you ask me. And then the Sumer people pretty much invented writing. So while we're adding classes to the list, Jeez. there's another one. So by 14,000 BCE, Mesopotamians established small communities with circular houses. Hmm. The area where they lived had good soil and water from the two rivers. So it was really great for agriculture and they could thrive there. And over a period of 5,000 years, the settlement slowly turned into farming communities, which is pretty cool. Wow. Mesopotamians came up with irrigation techniques and... Of course. <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah, I get it. <laughs> I like, and that was probably the biggest eye roll I've ever done in my life. My <laughs> eyes hurt because they saw the back of my skull. <laughs> of course. What well, time wasn't enough. Math wasn't enough. Like, let's just create irrigation. Let's just farm <laughs> crops for the first time. <laughs> So they came up with irrigation techniques and started domesticating animals and their communities thrived. They continued to grow. And once we fast forward several thousand years, we sort of see what you and I might recognize as cities. So you know, they kind of blossomed into these early cities. They really just they nailed it. I understand why, like, there are, like, historians whose whole job is just to try to learn about a fraction of this. They've really covered so much territory. Yes, there's probably historians who just study one irrigation technique that right? the Mesopotamians used. <laughs> oh, my God. I can't even imagine. Just there's so much to cover. I The concept is so overwhelming. It is. In the best ways, but I'm so glad other people are studying that so I don't have to because I know I'd be so scared. <laughs> You'd go gray very quickly. <laughs> <I> would. <laughs> Okay, so our friends, the Mesopotamians, seemed like very practical people. I mean, they're inventing math, for God's sake. So it might be surprising that they also had very sophisticated traditions when it came to the occult. And that's what we're going to break down next. Oh, man. Of course, they also invented the occult. So cool. It's like right? they couldn't be cool enough. They had to also <laughs> throw magic in there. I know. Greed, revenge, lust. Murder investigations often pinpoint why someone has been killed, but not necessarily who did the killing. Every Tuesday on Unsolved Murders, meet the victims, suspects, and investigators of the most notorious criminal cases in history. Part traumatic podcast, part old-time radio show, Unsolved Murders transports you to the scene of a crime, its ensuing investigation, and every attempt to solve the case. You'll soon discover that the murder isn't always the most shocking part of the story. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Unsolved Murders. Listen free only on Spotify. Spotify. 
Most of what we know about Mesopotamian religion comes from a collection of clay tablets that were discovered starting in 1850 in what is now northern Iraq. The tablets date back to the last millennium BCE, which was the Assyrian period. The Assyrian kings ordered that their religious practices be standardized and written down into what's referred to as handbooks. So these tablets, they laid out complex rituals step-by-step, the words to hymns, prayers, and incantations, and healing practices, which I just think is so mind-blowingly cool. Can you imagine discovering one of these tablets and realizing you've discovered something that lists, like, the rituals for a magic practice from thousands of years ago? It's just so cool. Can you imagine being the random person in today's world who found that? And Yeah! Or maybe, I don't, I don't know what the timeline there is. It probably wasn't a random person. It probably was an archaeologist, I imagine. But, you know, maybe not. Who worked really hard to find it. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, he probably went home and his 13-year-old kids who were getting D's in history were like, mm-hmm. okay, I literally couldn't care less about what you did. How tragic. <laughs> so embarrassing. But also, today, if I heard someone say, like, oh, my God, this exists. What in the world? Like... The earliest incantations and rituals step by step, like how this is beyond. It's so cool. It's mind blowing. And I I love that the Mesopotamians at the time, the Assyrians were like, you know what, let's write this down just in case. (laughs) I just think that's so cool. Like how smart. They also invented journaling. So. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, fair. The post-it. They, you know. (laughs) God, so cool. Oh, my gosh. So as we kind of mentioned earlier, Mesopotamians at the time viewed religion and magic as one and the same. So it's kind of how they understood various natural phenomena and their consequences, both good and bad. Basically, religion and magic went hand in hand, if that makes sense. Mesopotamian magic can be grouped into four major categories. So the first one is called liminal magic. And in liminal magic, a person or an object is transformed Mm. In Number two, which is defensive magic, basically this involves removing or repelling an evil or a threat to somebody. Okay. Then there's aggressive magic, which I just love the sound of. Hilarious. (laughs) Aggressive magic. And aggressive magic gives a person superiority, strength, and attractiveness. Ooh. Oh, okay. Pour me a cup of that. (laughs) (laughs) The fourth category is witchcraft, and this is where someone was harmed by magic performed by someone else. So I guess in this connotation, witchcraft has more of a negative view. Yeah, that's kind of Mm mind-blowing because I really, obviously, just because of the time period we live in, when I hear witchcraft, my first thought is modern, new-agey witchcraft and Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the concept of it all being like positive, good intentions. Yeah. Yeah. Botany, that kind of thing. But it it seems like it was a shift. Yeah, it was different, considered different back then. Yeah. The Mesopotamians had massive temples called ziggurats where people could perform rituals and commune with the gods. They had expert practitioners who performed rituals and other magic. And these practitioners belonged to the urban elite and uh, they served the elite as well. And they actually held offices at local temples or in the royal court. I think that's pretty cool. It reminds me of other ancient civilizations where people who worked in kind of healing magic and that kind of thing had like a pretty high rank in society. Just like how we were saying it's the opposite today for witchcraft where, or at least to you and me, that it's seemingly lovely as far Mm -hmm. as I can tell. But also that in today's world, practitioners like that aren't 
really taken seriously to be yeah. brought up at a royal court. But back then it was like, oh, if you have this gift that others don't, or if you have studied this. If you've worked hard to learn this. Yeah. You deserve yeah. a place in the royal court. And I'm like, well, that is so lovely. Yeah. And it's sort of like uh, the, the importance of that role has kind of changed over time. The stereotype of it or what it yeah. might look like. It, yeah. Interesting. Hard to believe. It was pretty different back then in the Mesopotamian <laughs> era. Back in 10,000 BCE, <laughs> things were not what it seems. I know. <laughs> what happened? Um, so speaking of magical practitioners, there were actually three main types of magical practitioners. Arguably the most important were the experts known as Ashipu, which is conventionally translated as exorcist. See, this is another thing, but it, things <laughs> things have done quite a 180. <laughs> Ooh, yes. So that is most commonly what that word is translated to. Hmm. They had the most public-facing role. They participated in temple rituals and performed ceremonies for inducting people into office. They could even perform death rites and purification rituals for houses, stables, and fields. They could renew images of the gods on behalf of the king and would help in the creation of divine statues and the foundation of temples. I mean, talk God. about like a, a cornerstone to this like society. Like a demigod. It feels like a demigod. <laughs> it feels like they're like, right, like one level under. Oh, my God. Wow. Okay. To be an exorcist in the in the Mesopotamian <laughs> era. Who knew? It's crazy. <laughs> That's what I'm going to do if I go back in time. I'm going to take my invisibility cloak off and be like, ooh, I'm an exorcist. I would at least be a fly on the wall and watch you, Miss Exorcist. <laughs> I would definitely want to see what that looked like back then, because in my mind, I think of like the movie, The Exorcist, and like a reverend. And a very different word. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which is interesting, though, because I would think an exorcist in like today's Christian circles, an exorcist is a priest who has to be really high ranking. So yeah, that's true. And has to study the, the incantation, so to speak. And yeah. So I mean, it yeah. still maybe has some similarities to today, but mm -hmm. the fact that someone would probably openly aspire to like, this, yeah, this yeah. Dream responsibility. Yeah. This is a very different role, I guess, back mm -hmm. in, back in that day. So the Ashipu was pretty powerful. He could act as an advisor to the king, and they were also considered healers, but they'd treat illnesses by dispelling evil forces. And that is kind of where we get into, it sounds to me a little more like an exorcist in the modern parlance yeah. to say, dispel evil forces, you purify the patient, and that's mm. how they treated illness. And doing this, you would protect them against future threats. So in that way, it does kind of have some similarity to the modern-day understanding of what an exorcist is. Yeah. Now, if you were sick, you could also consult someone known as the Asu, which is usually translated as physician. So I imagine already we're probably in a different... <laughs> Different meaning of that word as well. I think if exorcist does not mean something as wild as an exorcist, yeah, I think <laughs> physician, doctor, is, <laughs> physician yeah. is something else. It's a little different. We'll see. So the Asu would deal with more straightforward ailments like external injuries, fractures, a cold, etc. They could set bones, perform surgery, and they did use actual medication. But on top of that, they would also take part in rituals with the Ashipu. So, oh. you know, in some ways, pretty similar to a modern day doctor, just in a more mystical sense as well. Fun. Okay. There were also the Baru or the diviners. And these guys asked messages from the gods and then interpreted the resulting signs. This was often done through reading celestial and terrestrial phenomena or reading, get this, sheep guts. 
whoa, um, something <laughs> I've never done. I don't think. No, I'll, really? <laughs> nope. Not that I know of. You don't say. <laughs> but, you know, so this feels like it was at the time it was just like a medium. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of like an oracle almost. Like you're, An oracle. You're, yeah. You're reading the signs from either the stars or the earth or the sheep guts. It sounds like just about anything could be used with the right intention. So Yeah. Yeah, I cool. guess so. The Baru typically worked for the Assyrian king as either a court scholar or even in a military capacity, which I think is pretty cool. That is cool. As far as I know, we don't have military mediums or military oracles, but it could be <laughs> helpful. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I can't imagine a, a medium giving advice to like a five-star a general, gen- a general <laughs> yeah. or something. Yeah. <laughs> It seems there were also other low-ranking magic experts as well, but not as much is known about them. There are references to, for example, owl men and snake charmers, witches, warlocks, sorcerers. But these folks were often represented as shady characters who would perform black magic. Interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. And sort of like they were the on the opposite side of the coin. Like whereas some of these people were serving the king in like a higher purpose. Some were considered kind of shady uh, characters. Yeah, I, I could see it then because I guess it's whoever is most often and most closely representing the king. I could see mm. then why there's tears. But in today's yeah. world, if I heard someone say like, oh, I'm a witch, I'd be like, whoa, you are way more powerful than me. Assuming you know what you're doing, like, you know, way more than me. You sound a lot cooler than me. And like, <laughs> I wouldn't think of them as like low bar people. No, <laughs> no. But at the same time, I feel like today, if you tell somebody who, for example, practices a religion where they don't want to associate with that and you say, oh, this person doesn't tarot readings and magic and crystals, that probably has a negative connotation in a lot of circles, too. Yeah, that's as true. As being shady or unsafe or... I don't I don't want to say evil, but maybe just a more negative dark, a dark. Yeah, like a darker kind of side to it. Mm-hmm. So I could see why that would still happen nowadays. A sn- <laughs> I don't know what an owl man is, but uh, a snake charmer. I can see how that would get a bad reputation. An owl man is certainly lost to time. That one. I I, I know. I'm so sad. I wish I we like, knew. Snake charmers. I don't know any personally, but I have seen a few videos and it is captivating. So I'm, I'm going to imagine an owl man is similarly captivating. Oh, it's lost to time. I, w- I wish we knew. I wish we knew. I got to say, that's my pitch. If someone does. honestly probably a quick google that we could do after this but you know in this moment (laughs) i like the mystery of it (laughs) in this moment it is a guess to anybody what an owl man is (laughs) i am gonna tell the future board of the time travel directive that i want to go back and see what an owl man really was and i'll write it down and that'll be my pitch let me go back the crazy part is they might already know oh maybe they're owl men and they that's what they call themselves I don't know. Okay, well, we're, no, we're giving- derailing. Okay. <laughs> you're just giving me a headache now. Okay. So let's talk about the gods, the Mesopotamian gods. Each Mesopotamian city had its own patron god or goddess, and many of the gods also had different names depending on what era you lived in. There's no definitive guide to all these gods, and there is a lot of overlap. So remember, this era spanned over 10,000 years and multiple empires and periods. So it makes sense that traditions varied over time and not everything was like clear cut. Right. But here's some of the big names you might see in Mesopotamian magic rituals, according to scholars. So the first one I'll tell you about is Anki. And Anki is the god of wisdom and magic and was also the creator and protector of humanity. So um, big shoes, big shoes. (laughs) 
Truly, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I just like, can you imagine being told that that's your responsibility? Like, yeah, oh you, you get to cover wisdom, magic. Oh, and also you created humanity and you also got to keep humanity safe. Good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Big ask. Then there was Marduk, the son of Anki. And there was Shamus or Utu, the sun god, the god of justice and light. And another important one was Anu, the sky god. Finally, there's Enlil, the god of earth, storms, and agriculture, and the controller of fates. Oh. So there's a there's a short list to go for you. Yeah, just five of probably hundreds, if not thousands. Thousands, thousands. The more that we talk about these past religions, I mean, I obviously you two, we grew up in a space where it is predominantly expected for you to uh, believe that there's only one god. But mm-hmm. the more I like think about cultures with multiple gods. I'm just like, that makes so much more sense. Think of how many things one God would need to oversee. <laughs> like, he needs department heads. Like, I, Yeah, you got to delegate, you know? I'm like, I, how on earth can we expect him to do an A-plus job in every part if he has to, like, be the manager and has no employees, you know, like, no staff? So I feel I like... I totally agree. Maybe everyone just teams up and they're like, okay, I got this thing, you got this thing, I got this thing. You know, you I think thing. part, at least in Catholicism, the way they kind of go around that is with patron saints. So you oh. pray, you know, to a saint. So you'll pray, for example, to St. Christopher or for safety. You'll pray to... St. Michael, you know, all these different saints that are kind of representing different aspects of life. Like uh, St. Anthony, if you lose something, you pray to St. Anthony. Mm-hmm. I think that's how they get around the whole... Or also, like, God is so smart and powerful and all this and all-knowing that he wouldn't need help from anyone else or whatever the other excuses could be. But I like this idea of, like, look, everyone is going to do a crack shot <laughs> job in their one <laughs> space and everyone's is going to have a good time. You have your task and you have your your role. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. It really does. Makes sense to me. Everyone's got a got a position. Mm-hmm. Other deities that were regulars in Mesopotamian rituals include the goddess Ningarima, who is in charge of the holy water vessel. Yeah, I mean, just in charge of the holy water vessel. Like, that's a big job, but it's just one thing. You would lose that on the to-do list if you were one god. I would always back burner, you know? <laughs> Then there's a purification god, Kusu, who's typically associated with an incense vessel, not Mm -hmm. to be confused with the holy water vessel. Of course not. There's the divine fire, Gibalgira, who represents both the destructive and purifying force of fire. And then there's Seerish, who's the releaser of God and man. Jeez. Oh, my gosh. Very intense. So intense. I'm telling you, I think I'm on to <laughs> something They were on to something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> By the way, I like how your phrase is, I'm on to something. I know. I was like, yeah, okay, scholar, Mesopotamian <laughs> scholar over there. Yeah. Mesopotamians used sculptures and objects as part of their magic. They were usually in the forms of gods, animals, and hybrid creatures. For example, a statue of a mythological creature with the head of a man, wings, and the features of a bull or a lion would guard important rooms in the palace. Oh, fun. That's kind of cool. I like the symbolism there. One royal palace had stone carvings of eagle-headed creatures wearing jewelry to protect the king's reign. Mm. So just some fashionable eagles uh, <laughs> guard in the temple. <laughs> I wish I was uh, on the board of people who were trying to research each of the symbols. And they were <laughs> yeah. like, what is this eagle situation? What? Is he wearing an anklet, this eagle? <laughs> I was like... <laughs> I'm sorry, but who is he wearing? Like, what's happening? (laughs) He's accessorizing. (laughs) This ruby-encrusted eagle. People from more modest backgrounds who maybe didn't have eagles with ruby anklets on them (laughs) (laughs) would instead, the everyday folks, would instead put small clay figurines under their floors in an attempt to ward off bad spirits. 
I love that. Yeah. And this is pretty cool, too. The image of a dog, so like dog-related images, were associated with the healing goddess Gula, so their likeness would be used for health rituals. Oh. Positive connotation there. Well, also, like, in today's world, puppies are still healing. You yes, know? they are. So sweet. People would also wear amulets and pendants depicting gods and goddesses as a form of protection on the go, so to speak. I love just it. Just to have an amulet with you on the go. And up next, we're going to get into the good stuff. We're going to actually walk through a fascinating example of a Mesopotamian magic ritual. Oh, I thought we were already in the good stuff. Okay, no. Um, <laughs> yeah, definitely ready for it. All right. So right up top here, if we haven't explained it enough, I just want to say one more time, there was so much information to parse on Mesopotamian magic. Em kind of hinted at earlier, there are probably scholars who just study one tiny aspect of Mesopotamian culture and dedicate their careers to that. So today we're just highlighting some of the more unique and fascinating parts of the topic. I'm sure there are plenty of resources online if you want to do more of a deep dive but today we're going to poke in and see what a ritual might have been like, an example of a ritual from, from way back in the Mesopotamian days. Cool. So one thing that stood out to me were the Mesopotamian nocturnal rituals. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> Spooky. <laughs> Mesopotamians viewed the moon as a god, which I think is pretty cool. And they associated specific stars with certain gods and goddesses. Mm. They even viewed the night itself as a deity. So, How astrological of them. I know. I know. Here, you're on to something. Sometimes people would leave water outside under the stars to expose it to the power of the astral deities. The water could then be used in purification rituals. And I immediately thought about how people recharge or cleanse crystals in mm -hmm. moonlight by putting them outside overnight. Oh, yeah. Very similar concept, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah, it's interesting because it sounds a lot like today's witchcraft, mm -hmm. which is so ironic considering yeah. to them witchcraft was a no-no. It was so. a negative, yeah. Yeah, but magic all still stems from something, so it makes very sense. fun. There's still connections so many thousands of years later. The new moon period was seen as a good time for doing anti-witchcraft rituals. Ironic. I know. And during the Babylonian period, people practiced an extensive anti-witchcraft ritual called Maklu, burning, that took place over one night and included almost a hundred incantations. Whoa. So, busy night. <laughs> busy, busy night. Not getting much sleep. Basically, what the ritual did was reverse fates. So, like I said, witchcraft was more of a negative, seen as being negative back then. It's sort right. of like you're harming someone else. And so, the idea with this ritual is that whatever witchcraft the sorcerer had intended for the patient was then sent back to them. So, mm -hmm. like a, I'm rubber, you're glue. Yeah. Your witchcraft incantations coming back to you. Right. Okay, you know what I mean? <laughs> This reversal was viewed as an actual legal process. What? So, I know. So, the sorcerer or witch was guilty of slander because they were speaking this negativity towards someone else. And the ritual would then end with the innocent patient being acquitted. <sighs> wow. Cool, so, huh? it's very much like, you did this to me, so I'll do it to you. Eye for an eye. Let's call it even. 
Yes. And then I'm in the clear uh-huh. once the process is over. Over and done. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Cool. So it's pretty intense. The ritual would start with an invocation of the stars and the patient would ally himself with the gods of heaven and would ask them to purify him. Okay. And then the entire cosmos would be asked to pause and support this one patient's cause. Are you telling me this whole time I could have asked the cosmos to take a pause when I needed it? Yeah, for just a quick second. Can you take a breath for a second and help me out? Like, this is a lot. I'm going to need you to take a backseat, universe. <laughs> I know you're like holding the moon or whatever, but I need you to, <laughs> I need you to help me out for a minute. So, yeah, basically, this is, I mean, a huge ritual. They would ask all these deities to just take a minute and support this one patient's cause and help purify them. That's very lovely. It feels warm of like, oh, I have faith that you're looking out for me, everybody, but also individually, I feel seen. Yeah, that one person is important enough to protect. And I like that it seems like technically anyone could do this or... Was this? Um, it seems like this is quite a an extensive ritual. So I imagine you'd probably have to have somebody who knew how to do it. But if you had like a guide with you, like at least anybody could ask for this to be done for them. In theory, I like the idea of like, you know, even if people have to study really hard for this, nobody's gatekeeping the situation. It feels like if you want to be involved in rituals or these traditions, like everyone's welcome. I hope so. I'm not going to say yes 100% to that because I don't know. Okay. But potentially, okay. <laughs> potentially okay. this is accessible. I do wonder, though, I mean, I imagine if this is somebody's job to know all this, you probably either would have to pay for the service or, I mean, I'm not sure, but it seems like it would be quite a sought-after sure. ritual, sure. like a sought-after person to conduct a ritual like this. Gotcha. So we're not even close to done yet. So we're asking the entire cosmos to take a minute and pause, right? Mm -hmm. Then they would burn various figurines that represented witches and warlocks. And so these figurines were made of clay and tallow, and tallow is hard animal fat. So the clay part would burst, and then the tallow figurine would melt. (gasps) Right? So magical. Yeah, Yeah. it even looks magic. The aesthetic, it's on brand. (laughs) (laughs) So the expert practitioner, so this is the one who's kind of guiding the whole ceremony, Mm -hmm. the Ashipu, would defile a figurine of the witch's personal goddess by pouring a black liquid over her head and sealing her fate, death, and then leaving her in the darkness. Whoa. So this is a very intensive ritual. And yes, I did say personal goddess. Right. (laughs) That should give you an indication of how many gods and goddesses made up these traditions. My God. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah. And then as the sun would rise, they would perform incantations thanking the sun god for saving the patient. And at the end of the ritual, the patient would identify himself by viewing his reflection in a bowl of water. And that there the cycle is complete and they've been cleansed from the slander of a witch and warlock who had cursed them. Wow. And also, I like, talk about exhausting if someone's putting a hundred incantations into this and, like, the mental exhaustion the next day, you have to take a day off. You have to. Oh, yeah. Just the time alone to have to wait for the sun to come up. It's a long process. Wow. Long process. Anyway, that's just one example of a Mesopotamian ritual. So <laughs> just imagine one. that this was like a, a whole, their lives that were filled with these cool rituals and magic performances and that kind of thing. So this is just one example. How stinking cool. I know, right? 
Well, we asked the ParCast researchers, and as far as they can tell, none of this is practiced today. Although, like you said, Em, the aesthetic is pretty on point. I feel like <laughs> I feel like we could bring it back. <laughs> My fear is that, you know, someone who, uh, I don't want anyone appropriating anything, but definitely I think people should learn about the history of this because yes. it's just so stinking fascinating. The fact that there was, before anyone else really, I mean, this was so long ago, but before anyone else had really kind of given them a, a standard of like what to do and what not to do. Because in today's world, you kind of are either fact-based or faith-based. And I feel like in this time period, they found like the perfect way of melding both of them and you could have the best of both. And it was just really beautiful. Yeah, that's a great point. I love that, that it's kind of, you can have both at the same time and not have to pick and choose. I like that they were just kind of riding the wave of like, we don't totally understand it, but you know what? It's working. Even if it's, it's a placebo, working. it's working. So let's just keep we going. We invented the wheel. So you try to tell me it's not working. <laughs> right. Okay? As we drive away in our cars, <laughs> since we've got wheels. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, yeah, I think this is a very, very cool peek into what life was like back then, how old some of these kind of rituals are. And I think it's pretty cool, too, that we can see almost like reflections of modern day life Mm -hmm. in cultures thousands of years ago. Very, very cool. Uh, You had kind of touched on this, but just how close this is to astrology, Mm -hmm. just to have a star represented by a god or goddess and, you know, that certain stars or certain gods and goddesses ruled certain areas of life kind of links to astrology. So pretty cool matchup there. Yeah. I mean, of course, why just throw astrology back on the list, too, of like everything they invented. (laughs) But it is really interesting how after all of this time that there are still things that people are fully invested in that they created. I feel like if you told me something happened all that time ago, maybe through the butterfly effect, it, it caused waves for us to end up having this belief or that belief. But for some to be so still clean cut and direct is like astrology or certain rituals, like cleansing things with the moon. And like, Mm -hmm. I mean, how did those things... They lasted through time. ...survive this whole time? That's that's in itself is pretty incredible. I absolutely agree. Very mind-blowing. And I am imagining there are a few history channel or national geographic or what have you about this time period and i think i might spend tonight watching some documentaries Ooh la la my history teacher is quaking somewhere (laughs) she's like finally finally documentaries who are you Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with another great episode. Information on today's episode came from Britannica.com, the British Museum, History.com, Universität Wurzburg, The Met, UMass Boston, and National Geographic. Remember to follow Rituals on Spotify to get a brand new episode every week. And you can listen to this and all other episodes of Rituals for free exclusively on Spotify. And if you like this show, follow at ParCast on Facebook and Instagram and at ParCast Network on Twitter. You can find me at BM Schultz. And you can find me at Xteen Schieffer. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next week. Rituals is executive produced by Max Cutler and is a Spotify original from ParCast. It was created by Max Cutler. Sound design by Kristen Acevedo with associate sound design by Jamie Ryan. Research by Chelsea Wood. Fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez. It's produced by Kristen Acevedo and Jonathan Ratliff, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro. We're your hosts, Christine Schiefer and M. Schultz.
lack of evidence, poor police work, clever criminals. Whatever the reason, some murders remain unsolved. Every Tuesday, Unsolved Murders explores the facts of a real-life cold case. Part dramatic podcast, part old-time radio show. Join the ensemble cast of actors as they take you on an exhilarating journey through the crime scene and its ensuing investigation. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Unsolved Murders. Listen free only on Spotify.